This is episode 81 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Chingling Fu, the original Chinese conjurer. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 81. So, uh, before we get into the podcast, we've had a whole lot of uh, wonderful magicians passing away recently. Um, And I'm going to miss some names, and I apologize about that. One of them that uh, really uh, struck me was Martin Lewis had passed away. And I had met Martin before, brought him into lecture, actually, and he was such a genuinely nice and helpful and kind person. And, of course, his creations were top-notch and his performances were were wonderful. Uh, He was a charming entertainer and will be greatly missed. Um, I was contemplating doing this podcast on Martin and his father, Eric Lewis, but I think I'm going to save that for next season. Uh, Though, right now, what I would like to say is, why not reach out to his wife, Susie, and buy something from his site, magicraft.com. That's magicraft with a K instead of a C. Um, His new book on making magic is out, and I hear it's spectacular. Um, I've got a couple of items that I need to order from um, Magicraft as well. So, why not take some time out and do that? Because Martin had some great items that he offered, and Susie still has those for sale, so that would be a great thing. Next, we have Andre Cole, the illusionist, passed away on October 17th, and Earl Nelson also just passed away this week, and we mourn their passing, and more on those folks at a later date. Today I get to talk about the king of oriental magic. Oh, and before you get all bent out of shape, the term oriental is not racist. It's just kind of fallen out of favor in lieu of, uh, I think, the term today that's used more often than not is Asian. Um, And interestingly enough, during the 19th century, there was another term that was used, which was celestials, which meant coming from the celestial empire, which was another term for China. But today I get to talk about the king, the originator, not the countless imitators, many of whom were not even Asian, but rather I get to talk about the man who came here to America and created a sensation with his truly unique and amazing magic. I'm going to talk about Chingling Fu. I am not going to be talking about cultural appropriation or anything related to it. I'd rather learn all I can about Fu by getting to know what he was like from his friends, his family, the records that exist. Uh, My initial research led me to believe that Fu didn't even begin magic until he was in his 30s, and he was involved in one big challenge that we all know about, except those things turned out not to be exactly true. So I'll endure my best to give you the most up-to-date information that I can. So let's begin. He was born Zhu Lingkui, or Qi Lingkua, not far from Peking, China, on March 11, 1854. He came from a middle-class or possibly upper-middle-class family. His father was a merchant, and the family was in the mercantile trade. 
At age nine, he saw his first magicians on the streets of Tianjin. Also at age nine, he lost his father. At age 10, he came down with some sort of childhood disease, which left him bedridden for some time, and it was during this period that he began to learn sleight of hand and manipulation, much like a few other famous magicians who suffered illnesses or injuries and were confined to bed for long periods of time. This allowed Fu to concentrate on something and do it over and over again, building up his dexterity to combat the boredom of being in bed. According to the book Chingling Fu by Samuel Porteous, during this same period, Fu developed a stutter that he would suffer with to some degree or another throughout his entire life. I was actually never aware of this, but then again, Fu was mainly a silent performer, so I didn't, so it didn't hinder him uh, when performing in English-speaking countries. According to a June 1899 issue of Mahatma magazine, Fu spoke no English but rather traveled with an interpreter. More on that later. One of the items that Fu's family produced was a novelty item called Diablo. These are actually juggling props, kind of like a combination of a top and a yo-yo. And Fu went to work with the division of his family's company that produced these, and while at the same time becoming exceptionally proficient with the device. So for a time, he had a 9-to-5 job while pursuing his magic. If you're not familiar with Diablo and you've never seen one in action, I, I would encourage you to run over to YouTube and type in Cirque du Soleil, followed by the word Diablo, and watch one of the videos of the groups using Diablos in unison. It'll give you an idea of the flavor of the act that Chingling Fu put together. Around 15, Fu went to attend some sort of school of the arts, of which magic was part of the curriculum. He would later continue to work for the family business and expand his performances. At some point, he took the name Chingling Fu and began the Chingling Fu troupe. He performed in the provinces and throughout China, and he came to the attention of the royal family and gave a performance for them. They loved his performances so much, he was given the title Court Conjurer to the Empress of China, a title that he would continue to use for a number of years. Between the 1880s and into the 1890s, Fu continued to make a successful name for himself throughout China. So rather than the early story of him not starting until his 30s, instead, well, he continued to gradually build up his performing career while he was still in the family business. In his mid-20s, he married and started a family and also began a school for performers. But it was around 1897 that he was chosen to be part of the 1898 World's Fair, also known as the 1898 Omaha Exhibition in America. During the run at the 1898 World's Fair, Leon Herman arrived in town to perform. One evening, Fu and his company attended the performance. Leon recognized Fu and set out to impress him with his rendition of the linking rings, thinking that this was authentic Chinese magic and would surely appeal to Fu. But Chingling Fu watched the show without the slightest change in expression. One might even say he looked bored. Legend has it that the origins of the linking rings were from China. Perhaps this was not the case. Or perhaps Fu was aware of how overdone this particular effect had become and no longer found it interesting. 
Shortly after the Herman exhibition, Fu rented the same theater to put on an exhibition of his own. In attendance this time was Leon Herman. Fu began with the rings. He added his acrobatic and juggling techniques to the performance and had rings spinning in the air, rolling and returning from spinning them on the stage floor and more. Truly an impressive demonstration, but then suddenly Fu took the rings and in disgust tossed them into the wings with a simple utterance of bah. Then he proceeded to share with the audience the tricks that he was known for, the water bowl, the fire tricks, the ribbons, and others. What we don't know was, what was Leon's reaction to Fu's performance? Did the two parties, the Herman Company and the Chingling Fu Company, meet following the show? We don't know. Perhaps Leon more than recognized the insult given by Fu with his treatment and disregard for the linking rings. I personally love this story and spent a great deal of time trying to track down Leon's reaction from the other potential sources. And I mean, I spent a lot of time looking for this, and it was a lot of wasted time. The original story appeared in the Sphinx magazine, but that particular article doesn't give Leon's reaction to Fu's performance. However, and this is me assuming this, there would have been other people in the audience. Adelaide Herman would have been there, William Robinson, to name a couple. I checked the incredible autobiography of Adelaide Herman, and no mention of what Leon thought of Fu. In fact, no mention of the exhibitions at all. Then I scoured through various books on Chung Ling Su, and again, found nothing. And the reason I checked the uh, um, Chung Ling Su books was because Sue, as Billy Robinson, would have been present at such an event. The new book, Chingling Fu, America's First Chinese Superstar by Samuel Porteous, points out that both performers had tight schedules, and Leon would have been on a train to his next destination at the time Fu was apparently doing his exhibition. The book also points out it could have been made up in order to make Chingling Fu look bad, as some reports describe him as being very snarky towards Leon Herman. Putting Fu in a bad light would make Chingling Su, Billy Robinson, appear a bit more of a sympathetic figure during their eventual showdown, which I've yet to describe. So, the verdict is the Leon Herman exhibition followed by the Chingling Fu exhibition likely didn't play out the same. Perhaps the Fu company did attend one of Leon's performances, but I think that's where the story ends. Now, another story I discovered, this time from the pages of Val Andrews' book, A Gift from the Gods, says that it was Horace Golden who first brought Chingling Fu to the attention of Billy Robinson. According to the book, Fu was playing the Keith circuit at the time, but it's more likely that Robinson saw Fu during the time in Omaha with the Herman Company, or if nothing else, he had heard of him by that point because Chingling Fu was a sensation at the Omaha exhibition. When Chingling Fu's run at the World's Fair was over in November of 1898, he had bookings scheduled for a few months in, into the future. Not as many as you might think, considering what a sensation he had been, but his star was on the rise. 
the company would go on to St. Louis, New Orleans, and Chicago with increasing success, but then in March of 1899, Fu and his entire company was arrested. Apparently, a law called the 1882 China Exclusion Act, which allowed Chinese workers a short period of time to work in the United States and then had to return to China, well, this was applied to the Fu Company, and they had overstayed their allotted time, which is why they were arrested and they were due to be deported. But the whole affair was sent to court. Fu, in his own defense, tried to argue that he was an authorized merchant and thus should be exempt from the law. And it was true um, in, in working with his family business in China and then the associations he had in, in the States made him an authorized merchant. But the judge ignored that. Instead, he looked at the law and decided, well, and decided that the law was written really to apply to Chinese laborers. Chingling Fu and his company were artists, and thus the law didn't apply to them. And so they were released. One week after the verdict, Chingling Fu and company were headlining the Keith's Union Square Theater in New York City and setting records. He was the hottest ticket in town and would be the hottest ticket on the circuit. If I might pause for a moment and give you an overview of the Chingling Fu show. It was made up of a family of performers, each doing a different act. Fu was the conjurer, but there were jugglers, Diablo artists, contortionists, and more. Fu, as the lead, featured his giant bowl of water production, his incredible paper ribbon-tearing mystery, and his amazing fire-breathing act. This made up the main show. I'm giving you the basic details of, of Fu's act. Um, but Fu would add other things on occasion. During the end of the run at the 1898 World's Fair, Fu added a Chinese decapitation illusion where he cut the head off of someone in the company. When the Fu troupe went to work for Keith's, they were constantly adding new material into the show, keeping it fresh and interesting, and yet still keeping those elements that made them famous, the bowl trick, the fire breathing, and the paper tearing. While on the Keith's tour, Fu would give interviews through an interpreter. He used the interpreter to put himself in the best light, but the truth was, Chingling Fu could speak some English. He kept his English-speaking skills to a minimum and usually only used them around fellow conjurers. Remember, he did have a stuttering problem. And he was, by the way, a hit with his fellow magicians. Fu would constantly be written up in the pages of Mahatma magazine, though at one point they wrote a piece exposing some of his more famous feats. Fu had a very friendly demeanor towards his fellow artists, contrary to what was implied during the Herman confrontation that we now think likely didn't happen, though it was reported on. Fu had long been friends with Harry Keller. The two met each other in Shanghai in the 1890s. And he would soon be friends with Houdini and also Nicola. Nicola, who was just beginning his career, mentions how kind of an artist Ching Ling Fu was to him. According to the July 1899 Mahatma magazine, Ching Ling Fu was offering a reward of $1,000 to anyone who could duplicate his giant bowl production trick. William Robinson went up to take the offer, 
only to discover that said offer was filled with a lot of fine print. In other words, it made good press copy, but it was more of a publicity stunt and was worded in such a way as to never really give out the prize. This was the first challenge between Foo and Robinson. This one went in the favor of Foo. Also, the amount of $1,000 is rather unique. Uh, This is what the food troupe was making per week while working with Keats. Prior to that, when they were playing a few dates following the World's Fair, they were making a measly $260 a week. Still a lot of money during that time period, but nothing compared to what would come. Also, in the July 1900 Mahatma, Chingling Fu was the big headliner in Keats and had a great start, but at this point, one year later, his star began to wane due to the arrival of a new act, Houdini. Houdini was now the big Keith headliner, and much the same way that the Chingling Fu troupe tried to keep things fresh by changing material, Houdini was able to change his show at any time. So you could see Houdini three times or more in a week, and you might see a different show every time. In addition to Houdini showing up, Mahatma Magazine was advertising in every issue Chingling Fu's Bowl Trick for Sale. On top of that, that very magazine did an expose revealing the methods behind all of Fu's magic. And very quickly, imitators began to appear. Chingling Fu was not the first person to do the bowl trick in America, but I'm sure his presentation was above and beyond what had been seen prior. It had to have been because it created a sensation. I mentioned Fu's paper-tearing feat, and you might be wondering why such a thing could garner so much praise. In fact, I was talking with a fellow performer of mine, a friend of mine, about this very same thing, and he had a very blasé attitude towards the tricks. Like, you know, it's a paper-tearing trick, big deal. We've seen that a million times. But honestly, digging further, I discovered that many magicians of the time thought they knew how the trick worked, which is why they didn't think much of it. But if you saw it in person and paid close attention, it was one of those effects that was stronger and stronger as it went along. And the trick could easily have been lost to time if it were not for Harry Keller. You see, Keller and Fu were very close friends and arranged, uh, and Keller arranged for Fu to have a particular trick that um, I'll tell you about a little bit later in In exchange for that trick, Fu gave Keller the method to the paper-tearing mystery, and Keller shared that method with David Abbott. Thus, the secret was preserved for posterity. Teller of Penn & Teller fame points out that the secret to this diabolical mystery has been in plain sight since since 1977 when the first copy of The House of Mystery was published. And actually, I don't think it was called The House of Mystery back then. I think it was called The Magic and Science of David Abbott. But um, that trick, the paper-tearing trick, was in that book. And not one single magician in all that time has bothered to attempt this uh, beautiful, incredible mystery, according to Teller. And he also points out that it's likely going to stay hidden in plain sight in this book for who knows how long. One other point I'd like to mention, there were essentially two versions of the Chingling Fu show. There was the full theater version, which was, from what I gather, was really like watching Cirque du Soleil today. Uh, 
And then there was the condensed vaudeville version presented at Keith's theaters and others. And this latter version would have been like a 30-minute version that featured the best of the best in the, the from the bigger show. And I've mentioned William Robinson several times. Robinson was one of the best authorities on magic in the entire magic world during this time period. He was an excellent builder of props. He was creative. He had a brilliant eye for showbiz when it came to other acts, that is. He helped Keller for a long time. He helped Herman for a long time. And then he also worked with Adelaide and her nephew for a time. And after this, he chose to go out on his own as Robinson, Man of Mystery. And though he did have the occasional gig, the act, the act more or less fell flat. As Chingling Fu's popularity rose, the copycats soon came out of the woodwork. Lafayette was one of the first. Charles Carter was another. And William Robinson would go on to create the character of Chungling Su and basically create a, a duplicate show of the Chingling Fu show, which would later debut in London, a place where Chingling Fu had yet to visit. By May of 1900, the lucrative contracts and fantastic performances of the Chingling Fu troupe had run their course. In the previous months, the Keith Albee circuit had wreaked havoc with the troupe's schedule. Add to this the deluge of copycat acts and Fu's incredible salary all kind of led to this moment in time and the moment where it would all kind of come to a halt and the Fu Company would go back to China. Now, they still had contracts on the books, but they just were compelled to take a break. And it was a bad time to return to China. The country was in the midst of the Boxer Rebellion, which began in 1899. What's worse is the heart of it was taking place in Chingling Fu's hometown of Tianjin, from the book Chingling Fu, America's First Chinese Superstar, we learned that Fu had been trying his best to stay in touch with the management at Keith's Albee. From time to time, his letters would even be published in the magazines. But also occasionally, reports would come out relating facts that the folks here in the U.S. could not totally corroborate. One of those was the report that Fu's family, his entire family, had been killed. His star juggler, Harry Fu, had been beheaded. Those things turned out, thankfully, not to be true. Though Fu's family was scattered to the wind, and he did lose a brother in the war. Harry Fu was able to escape the madness, but just barely. A letter from Chingling Fu in February of 1901 stated that all of his property and business interests had been destroyed. He goes on to say that 50% of the people from the Tianjin area had fled. The, the situation couldn't have been more bleak. But worse yet, Chingling Fu still had contracts to fulfill in the States. He left before fulfilling those contracts, and Keith Albee expected his return at some point. By the end of 1902, Chingling Fu had finally been able to build a new show and find enough of his troupe or train new members to push forward. He began playing theaters in Shanghai, though this time around he was not quite the sensation because, well, everyone was doing these same tricks thanks to Fu's previous success. But there was enough charm in his show that um, 
kept him going. Rumors continued from 1901 to 1904 that Fu would be returning to America, and these rumors were begun by the Keith Albee folks. But it would appear that before coming back to America, Fu would instead go to London. Now, for context, William Robinson had created a sensation in London with his new Chungling Su Act. It was a complete duplication of Fu's act. But in 1904, after having presented his version of Fu's act for some time, William Robinson, as Chungling Su, began to create new effects and illusions. He was stepping outside of Fu's shadow and now moving into his own. He even added the ill-fated bullet-catching trick. This had a terrible history of killing those who presented it. Robinson, as Sue, created a unique and timely and topical presentation, framing it around the Boxer Rebellion. It was called Condemned to Death by the Boxers. In late 1904, Ling Fu and company came to London to prepare for their run at the London Empire Theater. His salary, more than $1,000 per week. But they were also in preparation to take on the man Fu referred to as that foreign devil, in other words, William Robinson, as Chung Ling Su. Fu and his new management team, the Moosier Brothers from San Francisco, decided to go discreetly to see one of Su's performances to see what they were up against. Fu himself took offense at some of the costuming, which he felt was not appropriate for someone of Robinson's stature. To wear. But they also took note of the newer illusions that were given a Chinese motif. These newer effects would need to be excluded from any sort of challenge, as Fu had nothing by which to compete. The challenge from Fu to Su was in three parts. The first part was that Su needed to prove his, well, that he needed to prove he was authentically Chinese. Secondly, Su needed to show proof that Fu had stolen his act and not vice versa. Finally, the third part of the challenge was the contest of magic. The challenge read, The challenge would take place at any hall or theater in London for an amount up to $5,000. Fu agreed to forfeit the agreed sum if he was a, unable, unable to perform any Chinese trick demonstrated by Su. Or if Su could successfully performed 10 out of 20 Chinese tricks that were demonstrated by Fu. Notice they use the term Chinese trick, which was a way to ex exclude the newer illusions being featured by Su. This was pointed out in Samuel Porteous's book on Chungling Su. The newspapers in London, and frankly across England and Europe, ran with the story. The war between the rival wizards was on. There was a private bet the Chungling Su wouldn't even show up. But on the allotted date, January 7, 1905, at 11 a.m., Chungling Su and his entourage showed up at the offices of the weekly dispatch for the contest. On hand were several invited newspaper men, as well as Harry Houdini, who would act as one of the judges. Houdini was friends with both men, but he was also a publicity hound, so he knew a good story to attach himself to when he saw it. The clock ticked by, and before long it was apparent that Fu was a no-show. 
Indeed, neither Fu nor his managers showed up. Chung Ling Su was recorded as letting out an enormous belly laugh and then went on to complete his part of the contest, duplicating 10 out of 20 Chinese tricks. By all accounts, they were done superbly. That is, until it came time for the bowl trick. According to the David Price book, Magic, a Pictorial History of Conjurers in the Theater, Su first rolled on the ground, and then when he arose, he was holding on to the large bowl of water and goldfish. And I wonder by that description if it's, this was similar to the somersault version that Long Tack Sam would later use in his version of the trick. In any event, the mystery of Sue's bowl production was known only to him. He was the victor by default. Well, sort of. There were three conditions, if you recall. Chingling Fu, knowing that Robinson, a.k.a. Chingling Su, had not fulfilled the first two criteria didn't even bother showing up because, in his view, the contest was null and void. The price book goes on to say that following the contest, Fu did his month-long run at the Empire Theater and then was canceled and left England, whereas Chengling Su went on to great notoriety. The truth was, Chengling Fu was quite successful at the Empire, but was only contracted for a month. After that, he went on to perform across Europe, and by November of 1905, Ching Ling Fu and company was back performing in Shanghai. In 1906 and 1907, Ching Ling Fu remained in Shanghai, this time focusing on his other business ventures. He put performing to the side. There may have been an alternative reason for his retirement from show business. It seems that the U.S. immigration laws, especially for those of Chinese descent, was becoming increasingly difficult. Uh, but by late 1907, he was getting that itch to return to performing. But it would take until 1909 before Chingling Fu was back on the boards, as they say. This time in Shanghai again. After their successful run there, they went on to Hong Kong. An interesting thing happened in May of 1910. This time, the great Nicola was in town performing. He had hired an interpreter who, frankly, was a little less than scrupulous. The interpreter, because Nicola didn't speak Chinese, the interpreter was giving away the methods to all of Nicola's tricks as he was performing them. Now, this could have been a disaster for, for him uh, if it hadn't been for the fact that Chingling Fu was sitting in the audience watching this entire thing play out. Fu stood up and called out the interpreter and then volunteered to step in and take his place. That way, Nicola could finish his show, and by all accounts, it was a huge success. Finally, in December of 1912, after many years of false starts and tangled negotiations with theaters and managers and U.S. immigration, the Chingling Fu troupe returned to the United States. Appearing with Chingling Fu was his daughter, Chi Toy. Now, she was just a child when the first tour of the U.S. was given, and she was a big hit back then. Now, she was married, but still a big part of the show. She would sing and win over audiences' hearts all across the United States. Chingling Fu's magic was singled out as still being great and included a few new mysteries as well. The company would play various theaters and then become part of the famed Zigfield Follies for a 
period of time. When the Follies ended their run at the National Theater in Washington, D.C., it was back to New York City for the Chingling Fu Troupe. They were still very much in demand and would again work very steadily. They continued to work and then toured the United States into 1914. In June of 1914, the Society of American Magicians, the New York Assembly, had their annual dinner in honor of Chingling Fu and Harry Keller. Next, the Fu Company was off to Europe for a tour that was cut rather short due to World War I. They returned to the United States and continued to be popular everywhere they went. Eventually, however, all good things must end. And it actually wasn't all good. Boo and company had a terrible time battling with the Albi circuit and others. But they managed, despite the bad blood that had built up. In 1915, Boo visited Harry Keller in California. He and his troops stayed with Keller at his home for two weeks before returning to China. One of the last things that happened was Keller presenting Boo with a working version of the talking tea kettle mystery. And Boo, by all reports, loved it, and in appreciation, shared with Keller the workings to his own famed paper mystery that I mentioned earlier. It's now 1916. Fu is enjoying semi-retirement in Shanghai when the impossible happens. His home, with all his animals, all his show materials, all his treasures from being on the road, new costumes, props, everything, is destroyed by fire. In 1918, rumors began about Chung Ling Su being extremely ill and dying. But these reports turned out to be untrue. In fact, Fu was considering yet another tour of the United States, even at his advanced age. His manager, the Moosier brothers, were never able to get anywhere with that potential tour. In 1922, Word came from China that Chingling Fu, the original Chinese magician, had passed away. An interesting side note is that the Moosier brothers, Fu's managers, had two younger sisters, Hattie and Minnie Moosier. It's noted in the book Chingling Fu, America's First Chinese Superstar by Samuel Porteous that the brothers sort of inherited some of Fu's costumes and set pieces after the death of Chingling Fu. The sisters, in turn, used these items to decorate their own Chinese-themed restaurant in San Francisco. Houdini was friends with the sisters, which is actually a completely different story for another time. But it's mentioned that the restaurant was a favorite of the theater crowd and a fitting place for Fu's memorabilia. Among the items on display was one of the large bowls that Fu produced throughout his career. Finally, in 1932, Chi Toy, the daughter of Chingling Fu, returned to the United States for another tour of the Chingling Fu troupe. This time, her husband was given the role of Chingling Fu Jr., according to the David Price book. And that, my friends, is the story of Chingling Fu, the original Chinese magician. Conjurer. What an incredible story. I didn't even get 
to everything, but I gave you the the bulk of it. He's such a fascinating character. For the longest time, I couldn't find very much information on him at all. And then as I was working on this podcast, just things started coming up all over the place, and um, especially this book by Samuel Porteous, which is just how he found out that much information is just incredible. But I encourage you, if you don't have that book, by the way, you should get it. It's a book uh, written for the public, so you can get it on Amazon. It's called Chingling Fu, America's First Chinese Superstar. It's a fantastic book, tons of magic history, and it kind of fills in some gaps as far as uh, things that were going on in the world while uh, you know Fu, Fu was performing. It's, it's incredible. So, I, hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I apologize again for the, um, the long uh, wait in between podcasts. There is a um, little thing called uh, show business that I'm involved in. And from time to time, it takes me away from doing the fun stuff. And that's what's happened once again here. So um, that's why I've been away. But I'm back. And here's uh, a little update. This episode will be officially the last podcast for season three, which means that season four is going to start really, really soon. I'm expecting it to start later this week, and I'm going to do what I normally do with um, the new season, which is put out several episodes back to back. Uh, I'm not going to give you a hint on what they are, but uh, I've got several, probably going to be several short episodes back to back, and a buddy of mine gave me some information on um, a not well-known magician just today actually told me about it, and I'm like, oh, that's got to be a new podcast coming up really soon, so um, I've got some great stuff coming in season four, and hopefully in season four I'll have more than... um, Uh, 12 episodes like I had in season three. So thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast. I really appreciate everybody that listens. Um, Please tell your friends if you um, know people that might be interested in the history of magic in this particular way to share it via podcast. And I will talk to you all very, very soon. Please be well, stay safe. I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Take care.